It got to the point where I was looking in the metaphorical mirror and saying to myself, all right, what am I going to do here? You're sacrificing your job effectiveness by doing as much as you can with this podcast as often as you can. And by not making a decision, you're making a decision. Ultimately, it came down to the fact that I just believed that I could turn this into a profession. I didn't exactly know how to do it or when it would happen, but I just started to believe. And ultimately, that belief kind of ruled the day for me. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Matt Chittum. Matt is the man behind the incredibly popular Rambling Runner podcast, which is a show about dedicated amateur runners who are working hard at the sport, but also balancing running with the rest of their lives. On the other end of the spectrum, he also hosted season one of the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, which followed the training, racing, and experiences of some of America's best runners as they prepared for the Olympic Trials Marathon this past February in Atlanta. Matt is a natural conversationalist, as you'll pick up upon in this episode, and I highly recommend checking out both of his podcasts. In this episode, we of course talked podcasting, how he got into it, what the tipping point was that led to his show's explosion in popularity, and how his prior careers as both a coach and a fundraiser have informed his approach to the craft. We also talked about Matt's journey in the sport, reigniting his own running fire in his mid-20s, and his current Mastering 40 pursuit of trying to break a 40-minute 10K at 40 years of age. We also discussed competitiveness, imposter syndrome, and a lot more. Before we get into this one, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I want to tell you a little bit about two shoes that you might want to check out the Fresh Foam 860 V11, and the new Fuel Cell Prism. Both of these are stability shoes, meaning they provide a little more support underfoot for those of you who need it. I am not one of those runners, but my wife is, and she's quickly become a huge fan of both of these shoes. The Fresh Foam 860 V11 is a solid everyday trainer that's well-cushioned, supportive, and reliable for handling a majority of your miles. It's a fan favorite, and for good reason. It is super comfortable when you slide it on, and it provides a smooth ride once you get moving. The lighter weight fuel cell prism complements it well with just the right amount of stability to keep you supported for faster workouts and races. It's sleek and has amazing responsiveness for when you really just want to let loose, and my wife just loves it for track workouts, tempo runs, and the like. Both are available at newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into this one with my man, Matt Chittum. What's it like for you being on the other side of the mic? Much more nerve-wracking. Because, uh, you know, asking questions is, you know, I shouldn't say it's relatively easy, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a, I feel like answering questions is usually for me much harder than asking them. I hear you. I'm in the same boat. I've been on a number of podcasts myself and I get way more nerved up when I am in the guest chair versus the host seat. Yeah, exactly. I think if for no other reason than when I'm asking the questions, the episode isn't about me. 
Right. So even if I'm a little nervous about it, ultimately, the uh, at least if I'm doing the episode correctly, uh, what we're talking about is the guest or some other topic or a little bit of both. Uh, whereas being interviewed uh, or you know coming on someone else's podcast it is, is a little different because you know that uh, you're going to be the subject of much of, much of the conversations, <laughs> which for me is uh, at least me with a little kind of a low grade anxiety. Why do you think that is? Uh that's a good question. I uh, I would say in part is some some variation of imposter syndrome, especially mm-hmm. in the runner space. Uh, unlike many of the people that I talk to, or that you talk to, or that are listening to this show, frankly, you know, while I ran when I was younger. I wasn't a competitive runner in any sense. You know, I came to this uh, later on in life, came to it as a hobby. And being in this space, while at this point now, it's like, this is, you know, my job is in the running space. Like, that's, this is literally my profession now, which is, while surreal in one sense, I definitely feel a little bit of the imposter syndrome in another sense. Because for me, it's, uh, I guess, coming to something later on in life, for me, I guess it has has that that feel to it. Um and it's uh, it's something that intellectually I know isn't doesn't quite jibe with the with the, with the reality of the situation, but sometimes uh, putting that those feelings into practice uh, is a little bit different than, than knowing they shouldn't be there. But that's why I think it's great that you're in this space because a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, but more so many of whom who are listening to your show can relate to you on that level. They either got into running later in life or they weren't super competitive when they were younger. And as someone who listens to your show, you bring that level of relatability to a lot of your listeners. And it shows just in the community that you've built and the feedback that you've gotten. Yeah, I, I would say that that's true. Uh, at the same time, you know, I there's this odd there's this odd piece to that where, and I don't know if you've experienced this as well, where you have this element within your show, like how much do I share in an episode? Not necessarily mm-hmm. about being shy about sharing details of my life, and, and I'm certainly not, but it's more of like, all right, do I want to keep this completely about my guest, or do I want to? as a way of moving the conversation forward, share a piece of my experiences that will kind of allow this conversation to maybe take, you know, maybe tack a little different direction or provide more context to a conversation. And I think people who have listened to my show over a long period of time, maybe through those bits and pieces, can kind of cobble together a little bit of what um, my running life or just life in general is about, um, whereas you know, you don't necessarily want to go full in on, you know, here's yeah, yeah, the story yeah. of my life while interviewing it a different person. Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that because I take a similar approach with my show. I want it to be about the guest. It's not about me. And if I have something to share uh, that's relatable and might help the guest to further go into their own story, I will. But for the most part, I try to leave myself out of it. And I know you do the same, but beyond just the podcast, I mean, the stuff that you're sharing on Instagram. I mean, you have, you've done these things too, where like right now, we'll talk about it over the course of this conversation, but you're doing Mastering 40. You're going to try to run a sub 40 minute 10K for your 40th birthday. And you've been documenting that journey and sharing it in various places. And I think outside of 
people who, who listen to your show, they're also a fan of, of you and they're interested in what it is that you're doing. And I think that's the part that's probably, you know, more relatable than whatever it is that you're sharing when you're in conversation with a guest. Yeah, I think that's right. And while there is some crossover there, I think I think you, you really hit the nail on the head with that. Um, you know, as as someone who, you know, I, it's if I'm sharing my life experiences, especially in the athletic realm, I'm not sharing these, you know, these visions of glory. <laughs> so some people have experienced, um, you know, either difficulties, hardships, hurdles, or just an inability to get the most out of themselves in an endeavor that they really care about, then what I share will usually be something that they can relate to. And, um, while it's hard to share some of those things, uh, either because you don't want to provide some sort of like false modesty or you don't want to come off as negative. And that's another part too. It's like mm -hmm. sharing these sorts of things usually requires some level of negativity. Um, you know, because you're sharing something that isn't in inherently positive. And I'm not a big fan of sharing negative things just to be negative. And you kind of... When you're, when you're trying to go out of your way to share experiences, I struggle with that because I don't want to be some like, wow, Matt's just complaining or Matt, like, and he's negative all the time or something like that. And I don't think that I am, but I always try to kind of, I guess, going on that fine line between, you know, providing a realistic snapshot or realist or like a, a kind of a pointed anecdote about what's going on in my life while at the same time trying to generally be a positive person in the world, whether that's the real world or the digital world. Um, and that, that can be, uh, sometimes can be a hard line to, to, to kind of stay on the edge of. But uh, ultimately, you know, if someone you know, has experienced a similar sort of thing or they're going through it in the moment, like just like I am, I think that we can all learn from each other or even more so kind of understand that, you know, while we might be going through something that's less than ideal or maybe not reaching the, our what we think are our capabilities, there's this kind of brotherhood or sisterhood in the fact that we're not the only ones going through that. And that knowledge allows us to take comfort in the fact that maybe we're not there yet or we're struggling because we know that, hey, at least we're not, you know, some sort of like anomaly within this situation. Yeah. And I think that's where you can put a positive spin on it because coming from yourself, when you share these things, experiences that you're having, it may feel negative when you're broadcasting it, but someone who is listening to that and digesting it to them, it makes them feel less alone. And it's a positive thing where they're like, hey, I'm in it with this guy. Like I'm, I'm sharing a very similar experience to them. And then as you go along in your own journey and not that the, it always ends with the result that you're looking for, but people latch on to that. And I think they, they take something away from it. They learn from your learnings, right? As you're learning from your learnings. And then if you do come out the other side, you achieve the goal that you were setting out to um, go after in the first place, or you learn something along the way can almost appreciate it more. You can almost appreciate it more because of where you started from. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you hope that, you know, that 
that I'm able to learn first and foremost from my mistakes or from my difficulties or challenges because ultimately like, oh shoot, if I'm not, that's not a great sign. But in addition to that, I know that's how I learn oftentimes Mm -hmm. is seeing what other people have done or are doing. And I think that there's two ways, not two ways, but there's probably a wide range here. But it's one thing when you see someone of elite status go through a challenge and come out the other side. That is really cool to see. I love it. I love all sports media. <laughs> and I can I consume that most readily, right? Like you see Kara Goucher going into trail running. Mm-hmm. Like what a great example of that, right? Taking on this new venture. She wasn't exactly you know fully healthy when she did it and battling through it and so on and so forth. That's really fun and exciting. And I love doing that. Even more so, I love talking to individuals who are dedicated amateur runners who are doing it just for the just for like this vision of themselves and for no kind of like there's no other piece coming to them right um and you know that's not to that's not to compare and compa- compare and contrast them with like say Kara Goucher who like obviously is sponsored by certain people but certainly obviously takes a lot of um personal joy in achieving things and and going through the process it's more of all right this individual is you know struggling working hard has a vision for the future has a vision for what they think they can achieve and gets knocked down, stumbles, gets back up, and then it's this like herky jerky um, way to get to their you know big hairy audacious goal. And then whether they get there or not, you or I, I should say, I'm not like, universal you, but like I can take a lot of inspiration, motivation from that, and even more so, I can I can capture that feeling of all right, if this person can do that, what's holding me back? and then do the introspection needed to try to knock that down. Before we go any further here, for people listening to this who don't know who you are, you host, well, I mean a number of podcasts. Your main show is called The Rambling Runner, and it's dedicated to the stories of amateur runners. You had a show leading up to the Olympic marathon trials earlier this year called Road to the Olympic Trials, where you sort of had this rotating cast of characters that you checked in with over the course of their build-up to the race. And your third show, which I really enjoy alongside the other two, is called Sports and Business Discourse Podcast. You have a co-host, Jason Macaluso, I believe is how you pronounce his name, where you talk about the intersection of sports and business. And as you mentioned a little while ago, this is what you're doing full-time, along with some run coaching, which we'll talk about later in this conversation. But I'd love to just go back a little bit and hear more about your entryway into podcasting and what was behind the launch of your main show, The Rambling Runner Podcast. Yeah, so I just love audio content. I think anyone who's listened to this is familiar with audiobooks. And for me, like that was the genesis of it. So um, my first job out of college was um, a college basketball coach. So I coached college basketball for seven years and I was a D3 assistant coach. And with those jobs, those are always part-time and or volunteer. So you need a job alongside of that. So I was also working in the admissions office. So between those two jobs, I was on the road constantly. I was driving an unbelievable amount of miles. Like I mean, maybe 50,000 miles in a year. Like it was insane how much I was driving. So I was literally, it was either the radio or audiobooks for me, you know, and then ultimately I got into podcasts later on. So I was always into the audio content right from the start. Then 
I got into podcasts a little bit later on. I loved that just as much as I love audiobooks. And you know, I think I might have been the first person to subscribe or get a membership to Audible. Like I was, I was real early on Audible. I love that stuff. And um, with that as a background, I ended up leaving coaching. And then I was working in fundraising. I was at Providence College. And they have a wonderful marketing communications team. And they were right next to where we were in the fundraising unit um, on the fourth floor of Harkins Hall. And I knew some of those people really, really well. And I would bump over there all the time like, hey, you guys, you're interviewing all these exciting, interesting people for the alumni magazine or the web content you're doing. Why don't you just record the conversations and put them out as a podcast? Like you're already doing the interviews. And um, just, you know, good-naturedly, I was always, I was constantly haranguing them about that. And if for no other reason, then I just needed another podcast to listen to. And about six months after doing that, uh, the guy who ran that department, Joe Carr, just the best guy, comes up to me. He's like, hey, Matt, we, we actually bought the podcasting equipment to do the show. I'm like, hey, man, that's great. Congratulations, you know? He goes, but there's actually, we actually have one, one hurdle that we have to, to have to get through. I'm like, oh, man, what's that? He's like, well, um, you're going to be the host. I was like, wait, what? I'm going to be the host? Like, first of all, I don't work on your team. I don't have any experience. I don't have a me I don't have a degree in marketing or journalism or anything. I did, I'm not even a public speaker. Like, what do you mean I'm going to be the host? He goes, it was your idea, so you're the host. Which like, be a lesson to everybody, you know, if you have an idea, make sure you can run with it before <laughs> you tell anybody about it. Um, so my boss ended up clearing me to do it. And then that was the start of me being a podcast host. All of a sudden, I was doing a weekly show. It was one of the first college podcasts in the country, the Providence College Podcast, and it's still going now. And we interview people weekly, whether they be uh, faculty, staff, alumni, um, students, what, what have you. So that was my intro into podcasting. And then six months later, the Anchor app, which started off as basically an audio Twitter app, which is a horrible idea. This is an awful idea. But for some reason, I think I must have heard it like on a Gary V like um, podcast or um, YouTube clip or something that he like was interested in the app. So I had downloaded it at some point. So it was on my phone. I was on their newsletter list because of it. And they converted their app into the first phone to phone podcast, but basically like podcast in a box app. So you could re record a podcast going phone to phone, which you could never do that before and distribute the podcast to all the major podcast distributors like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, what have you. So all of a sudden, the barrier to entry to get into podcasts had been removed. So I don't need a producer. I don't need equipment. I don't need, you know, um, a dedicated laptop and, and Wi-Fi even to, to, to make all of this happen. And I actually was maybe the first person to put out a podcast on Anchor, which now houses a third of the world's podcasts. I put out, I started my podcast an hour after I got that email. Um, and, you know, kind of like, hey, I'm already doing this and let's, let's go have some fun with this. And I believe they're now owned by Spotify, isn't it? Yeah. So Spotify bought them. It was a, it was a two part. I think they, in the press release, they acquired two, um, two companies at the same time and they released a, they had a release about it. I think they, they paid 500 million for the two companies. So maybe they bought them for 250 or 200 or something like that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting move. So when I got that notification, like I could do a podcast, all I need is an iPhone and I already have that. All right, well then what do I want to make it about? For me, I loved running podcasts. At the time, all the ones that I knew about were pretty much focused on professional runners. And 
the people who are doing that were doing a great job, just as they are now. And it's, you know, they, they, they basically had that corner covered in my book. So my feeling was, all right, I want to do an amateur running podcast. I don't know of anyone who's doing that. But even more importantly, I don't care if anyone listens to this. So I just want to have interesting conversations with dedicated amateur runners. And if people listen to it, fine. If they don't, I'm better for these conversations anyway. And with the Providence College podcast being the backdrop for me, you know, PC had 50, has 50,000 alum, but you would get like 125 downloads per person, I mean, per, per episode. So that was like, oh, wow, if I could get 125 downloads per episode, that, that'd be as much as the PC podcast. That would be pretty cool. You know, I mean, that's how naive I was about some of this stuff. So I started the podcast with that in mind. And the first, oh, Mario, you'll love this. The first episode I recorded, I was actually on a work trip. I recorded it with Shawana White, uh, who's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And she was a, she was a great guest. I, re, I had really, you know, this was my first podcast where it was just me doing it. I was so nervous because it was like my name on it, not Promise College's name on it anymore. And I actually, because at this point, I basically made full use of the, the, of the mobility of going phone to phone that I recorded it from a Target parking lot in Riverhead, New York on Long Island <laughs> in between um, fundraising visits <laughs> when I recorded it. And I, I kind of went from there. And like most people who try something new, it was not good. And frankly, I didn't care because I had no expectations. So help orient me a little bit. What year are we talking right now? This is three years ago. Okay, so we're like 2017. Right. And how did you decide upon your first guest? I think it was as simple as, who do I want to talk to? So I followed Shuana on Instagram. She's this really energetic, excitable runner who, like, had loves sharing things about her running. She was, you know, super fast, but seemed really approachable at the time. And, you know, if I thought I had like, you know, if, if I have imposter syndrome now, you can imagine what it was three years ago. So I was like, all right, you know, I had communicated with her, like, you know, whether it was comments or DMs. So she wasn't, for me, she wasn't a stranger. You know, I never met her in real life, but she wasn't a new person that I'd be talking to. So I think all those, all those factors coalesced into asking her, and frankly, you know, I didn't have any expectations that she'd say yes, to be honest. And had you decided on the name of the show at that point? Yeah, that came to me pretty quick. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know the reason behind it. I think if someone's listening to this, they could probably guess the reason because I'm just rambling <laughs> on and on. But I can't tell you, like, you know, that's after the fact, right? I hadn't had a show about running yet. Um, I think it was just like, all right. If it's not going to rhyme, let's go with alliteration. So when you recorded this first episode, I mean, you just described how you didn't care if anyone listened to it. It was just for yourself. And you made the show that you wanted to listen to. But how did you go about putting it into the world and sharing it with other people and encouraging others to listen to it? Well, for the first six months, I really didn't do much of that, frankly. Um, I was... I knew I knew what I was putting out there wasn't great. I think the guests were really good. I was aware of my own inabilities at that point. So I wasn't really ambitious about putting it out there. So I really, when I said like, hey, I didn't care if anyone listened, like that's not false modesty. I really didn't care. 
So um, I didn't actively market it. You know, I had an Instagram account and I would share the graphics and then some of the guests would share the graphics as well. But it never really went beyond that. I didn't do, um, I mean, I literally, that, that was the end. I didn't do anything beyond that. And the first six months is a testament to that lack of lack of marketing initiative. Uh, so I said, I don't care if anyone listened to it. And Frank, basically nobody did. The first six months, uh, there were 8,000 downloads in total. Which is still pretty solid when you consider the entire landscape of podcasting. Yeah. At the time, remember, it was a little different. A lot's happened in the last three years. You know, there just weren't a lot of running podcasts out there. So, um, and there certainly were no amateur running podcasts. So basically what had happened was I didn't have a lot of subscribers. So I would have somebody on and basically their friends and family would listen. And then I would have another person on and then their friends and family would listen so i i didn't have this huge base of subscribers would say all right you know if i have say you know let's say a thousand downloads you know say 700 will be subscribers and 300 people will be new to the show like it was it was all new people almost all the time um early on and uh and that was that but you know so eight thousand in six months it's um you know while it's not awful i think what came later really sure. dwarfs that number when you recorded that first episode, were you hooked? Was it this feeling like, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. This is the show I want to make. This is the show I've been wanting to listen to. I would say I probably had that feeling, but I don't think I could have put that feeling into words at that moment. Mm-hmm. I think the excitement around it was, was palpable for me. Um, you know, it's just like being on the starting line frankly, of a race where you're excited, but you also have that anxiety. You know, you also have the, I've already peed five times the last 45 minutes, but gosh, I have to pee again. Type feeling. Um, and all of that is kind of ruminating inside of you. And that hasn't changed. Mario, that, that's how I felt five minutes ago before we started this podcast. Like I made a last ditch, last like trip upstairs. Like I got to go to the bathroom. I'm so nervous. Um, and that's, I still get that now. So I think that's usually a good sign in terms of that excitement mixed with anxiety usually is a pretty good hint that something is um, a good match for you and kind of checks all the boxes in terms of something that you could potentially or certainly are passionate about. And as someone who, I guess, you know, when I think back to my coaching and admissions careers, you know, certainly I love, you know, I love coaching more than anything. Admissions I just did on the side and with fundraising, the best part of the job always was the personal interaction associated with each of those. And with that in mind, while I was new to podcasting, certainly that communication piece wasn't wasn't new you know admissions you're kind of public speaking you know usually it's in front of 10 to 15 um high school sophomores or juniors uh which isn't the easiest crowd uh or a group of parents who are worried that you know they're about to blow their life savings uh on college or or something like that and so i guess in retrospect maybe i did have a little bit more experience than i thought i did but you know and then with coaching talking in front of those groups or recruiting it was when I got to really engage with people in each of those professions, that was that's that's when I loved those jobs the most. So being able to do it about something that I was eminently passionate about um, really, you know, brought the whole thing home. 
It's awesome to hear you describe that because you were laying the groundwork for what you're doing now without even realizing it. And I think there are a lot of people out there listening to this and not necessarily as it relates to podcasting per se, but they're doing things in their life that are laying this foundation for something that they might not even be able to see down the road. And it isn't until they get there and they look back that says like, hey, when I was doing X, Y, and Z thing, like those are actually helping me develop the skills that I need to do what it is that I'm doing now. And that's pretty cool. Right. It's kind of like the karate kid prep for podcasting. <laughs> right. You know, these little mini movements. You're not sure how they how they how they're gonna coalesce, but ultimately they do. Since we're on the topic, what are some of the specific skills that you were developing as a fundraiser, as a coach, as someone who worked in admissions that you can look back at now and can definitively say they've helped you become a better podcast host and conversationalist? I would say the coaching is the, the coaching piece would be just being tied into competitive athletics gives you an insight into competitive athletics no matter the sport, right? Competing against people and with people, alongside people, and helping other people compete. Um, it really doesn't matter the endeavor on some level. Uh, it, it's kind of universal. I think I think that element has helped me uh, within the podcast certainly. Uh, Within, when it comes to the fundraising piece, the key to fundraising is is asking questions, right? If if you're just on blast about why your nonprofit, college, university, kicks, you know, GoFundMe page, what have you, if you're just on blast about why it's great, you're not going to raise the kind of money you're looking for. And I'm not saying this is someone who's an awesome fundraiser. Like I, I wasn't, but um, I was aware of what made a good fundraiser. And I worked with a bunch of them. And what the key was, was to ask insightful questions constantly and to really get at the heart at what drove people and what inspired them into what they were thinking. Not leading questions. Not like, hey, wouldn't it be great if dot, dot, dot type stuff, right? Um, really getting a handle on what interests them, you know? So once you got to that point, then you could try to potentially connect the dots into from a fundraising perspective, you know, funding something at your organization that matches the interests and passions of the donor. So that's when fundraising is done right, that's how it's done. In addition, if you're making a fundraising ask, there's always this key thing, right? So, so, I'm, so I'm asking you, Mario Freoli, you know, to you know, give $100,000 to Providence College you know, I make that ask, however I'm making it and for whichever part of the college I'm making it. And then you shut up. <laughs> Silence. You make the ask and you're, you're silent. And you let the person think and answer the question, however they are going to do it. And the key there is embracing the silence because so often in fundraising and then later on uh, with interviews is you feel this need to fill that to fill the silence. Like, oh, this person's uncomfortable. That's like usually where your mind goes. It's like the default mode. Like, this person's uncomfortable or I should help them out or, oh, I'll give them like an example, right? So to put it into, into podcasting terms, I'm like, so, you know, say I'm talking to Peter Bromka and I'm like, so Peter, you, you cross that finish line, you're four seconds from missing the most important athletic goal of your life. What was your first thought that came across your mind? 
and then he waits five seconds to answer, and you're like, it for you as the host, it feels like 50 <laughs> minutes you're waiting for that answer. And then the you know, you're 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 drawn to the idea of of helping him along or filling in the silence. It's like you must have been you must, man, that must have just been so emotional, right? You was just filler words to throw out there. And as a fundraiser, you learn to kind of cut that out and let that person come to the table when they're ready to. I'm glad you bring that up because as a podcast consumer, it is my biggest pet peeve in the entire world when the host feels a need to jump in and inter- either interject their opinion or try to help the guests along. And for me, I always try to do the same thing. Give the guest the space that they need to think about the answer that they want to give you to the question. And one of my favorite interviewers of all time is a guy named Cal Fussman. He did a lot of profiles for Esquire magazine. And he actually has a podcast called Big Questions, which is great. And the best piece of advice I've ever heard, and I try to keep it in mind every time I do an interview and I'm on this side of the mic, is to let the silence do the work. And when I'm in a room with my guest and we're recording across from one another, those are some of the most incredible moments because in that silence, which does feel like an eternity, you can look across to your guests and actually see them working through a problem or thinking about something that they haven't thought about in a long time or perhaps ever. And nine out of 10 times, that's when you get the most incredible answers from someone. When you just let them go and give them the space to do what they need to do and figure out what they need to figure out. It's so much harder to do in person. That's for sure. It's so much easier to do it when you're interviewing someone over the phone or talking to someone over the phone because you're not picking up on the physical cues, specifically like the physical like <laughs> like discomfort cues where you're like, oh God, like, you know, not only do you, you know, want them to, um, you know, you, you just want them to, to spit it out because you're worried. You're just, just, just worried. Not about anything specific. You're just, you're just tense, but you also want them to still like you on some level. Like, not that that even matters, because it doesn't, but you still do, right? Um, and it's just one of those things that's ever-present. Um, you're having them on the show because you think they're fascinating or captivating or you're a big fan of theirs or what have you. And, you know, the, you, the idea of them liking you is never far from your mind. And, you know, when they have those pauses, you know, I know for me, my mind immediately goes to the negative, like, oh, God, I ruined it. Oh, no, what did I do? And, you know, it's just trying to tap that down a little bit. What are some skills that you didn't have that you've had to develop over the last few years to become better at your craft? One thing that I still struggle with is mitigating language. A lot of likes, ums, that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I use it a lot, for sure. You know, I'm not an NPR host, so it's not that big of a deal. It's much more conversational. Um, but I pick up on it. You know, when I listen to the show after the fact, I pick up on it. I don't know if anyone else does. Uh, but that's, that's one of those things that's been a consistent struggle for me. Uh, another piece is being prepared, but not feeling like I have to stick to the plan. So getting that fine line of like, I know what I want to talk about. Here are the bullet points, but being able to stay in the moment with the guest to answer interesting follow-up questions or to let the conversation potentially veer in another direction. Or, 
you know, to scrap the plan altogether and be like, oh, wow, like this is much more interesting. Uh, that's, I feel like that, that's something that I've grown over time. And part of that is because you're just less anxious. You know, you're, you're less controlling of it. Um, you're just going to let the conversation breathe. And part of that, you know, it, it takes a certain, it takes a certain amount of self-confidence because all of a sudden you're going into uncharted territory. And once you've done it a couple of times, you realize like you can get it back. It's fine. You know, you're going to be, you know, even if, even if the conversation dead ends, you'll, you'll segue out of it. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, but at first I found myself wanting to follow certain lines, um, mm-hmm. of conversation and, you know, that was, that was potentially there. And then the other piece, um, about some of this was, was just understanding what my audience was looking for. You know, once I had an established audience, figuring out that fine line between what do they want out of this podcast while still exploring new things. And those can sometimes be paradoxical because maybe the things you're exploring are not something they're interested in. Not that my listeners are one voting block, right? They have all the different interests. But uh, you know, there are certain lanes that, there's certain reasons people listen to my podcast. And while they all don't have to be exactly the same, there's usually some consistent overlaps with some of those interests and needs and wants. And trying to make sure that you're aware of those not necessarily with guest selection all the time, but just where the conversation's going and and how you want to explore certain things with certain people because certain folks, they have such unique and well-developed lives. There's going to be like 50 different conversational streams that you could have. Which ones are you going to choose? And I think trying to align that with what's what, what, what my audience is interested in is helpful. How do you navigate those murky waters between what you're interested in and what you want to learn from a guest versus what you know your audience might be interested in learning from whomever it is that you're speaking to? Um, because, my, because my audience is a lot like me in terms of their dedicated amateur runners, um, you know, usually it was kind of a similar age bracket, you know, kind of a lot of them have young, young families, not all of them, but you know, there's a lot of my listeners are very similar to me, um, in that way. And because of that, I usually what I'm interested in, a lot of them are too. And I try, I, I usually don't get too worried about that fact in terms of like, am I interested in it or are they <laughs> the times where I have to, the times I have to reel that in is if I'm talking to a pro, which I don't do very often, or if I'm talking to someone like yourself where like all of a sudden I want to geek out about podcasting. And I'm doing it too much. And I'm like, all right, I got to talk to this person about running. Uh, this happened this morning. I was interviewing uh, Zoe Rome, who is the host of DNF, which is an unbelievable podcast. And she's an She's a beast of a runner. She is unbelievable at running. And like, and in my head throughout the beginning of the conversation, I'm like, I got to make sure I talk about X, Y, Z. I can't just talk about what I'm talking about right now. And as much as I want to, I, need, I do need to pivot at some point. And I'm, I'm you know, that's, that's sometimes where I, I, I understand that. But usually because of the infrequency of those conversations, it doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot. It's not like this week by week struggle. Yeah, and that's the beauty of having a diverse range of guests because you'll go to different places with each of them. So even though, as you just described, a lot of themes may develop, if you do go off on a tangent with one of your guests, it doesn't ruin the entire flow of the show. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I think most of them, I've, I've, with a lot of them, I've built up the capital of, all right, like this is a little tangent. I'm not interested in this, in this, but I'm not necessarily going to turn off the episode. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, which makes it, you know, which kind of also eases that that pressure. I'm like, all right, yeah, like this isn't necessarily interesting, but you know, I'll stick with it because I'm sure it's going to come around. Earlier in this conversation, you talked about the first six months of the Rambling Runner podcast. You said you had about 8,000 or so downloads. At last check, I think you were over like two and a half million downloads. And this is over the course of the past three years. What was the tipping point for you where all of a sudden you noticed this swell of interest in your podcast? Yeah, it was, uh, it was right around New Year's. Uh, after that first year, so the first six months. So the, the podcast started beginning of July 2017, 8,000 downloads later, here I am um, right around Christmas time. And just like everyone else around that time, you're thinking about, all right, what am I going to do the next year? What am I going to focus on? What are some things that I care about? Um, within my job at the time as a major gift officer at PC, I realized that you know social media marketing was something that I, I cared about and I thought could be helpful for me in my role. But I also knew that considering my job, that I wasn't really in a position to experiment with ways of doing it because if I stepped out of bounds or did something that wasn't great, that it could affect whether or not I was still employed there. So I'm like, all right, like what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start using the podcast as my, as like the thing I was going to do social media marketing for. So I was going to use that as a tool to, to learn how to do social media marketing and, you know, I'm going to still do the podcast, but I'm going to really focus hard on, on what this means, try to learn the best practices and do it for the show so that I can get better at it for my job later down, later on the line. <laughs> like not understanding that at that moment, I had just basically, for all intents and purposes, left my job <laughs> in terms of like the things were going to move in the future. But that was that was the, the defining moment. So, you know, those 8,000 downloads, first six months, the following 12 months, I had a million downloads. And... You know, I basically said, all right, what do I, what would a professional marketer and social media marketer do for this podcast? That's what I'm going to do for it. So I got, you know, a better logo. I, you know, went out and did basically one-on-one guerrilla marketing on social media, right? Constantly interacting with people in the community, not just people who maybe were following me or whatever, but people in the running community and other dedicated amateur runners, you know, you know, corresponding with them, doing, you know, commenting on what they were up to, just engaging with people as much as I possibly could. And I spent that whole year, Mario, doing that. And it took up a ton of time. And it was exciting because I was seeing the fruits of that labor in real time. My podcast started growing exponentially when I started doing that. And it was amazing to see. Like it was, it was like nothing I've ever been a part of professionally to see the amazing growth that started to happen. And the other thing I started doing was I started doing two podcasts a week. I was like, all right, I think I can do this. And I about two podcasts a week. And, you know, I kind of stumbled into it at first. You know, I started getting more and more people started saying yes to when I'd ask them to be on the show. So I'd want to interview them right away. All of a sudden I had this backlog of episodes. I'm like, hey, I'll just start putting out two a week. People liked that. And I'm like, oh, it's going to keep going with it. And all of those things, and I'm sure several more, uh, kind of led to the point where the podcast really started gaining uh, some momentum within the amateur running community. And I tried to do the best I could to try to fan the flames. When you started putting more of your time and energy into it, did it affect any other areas of your life, whether it was at work with your family or your relationship to your own running? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Like I got much worse at my job. 
<laughs> like no question about it. Like I became a much worse fundraiser uh, because of that. And um, you know, I'm not saying that lately. Like I, you know, I didn't, I didn't. When I my last day at Providence College, I didn't know it was going to be my last day at Providence College. Let me just put it that way. There's certain things I'm allowed to say, not allowed to say. But that was that was an unexpected day for me, uh, and that's something that I still think about to this day. But with that said. It definitely impacts it because you're putting a lot of time and effort and energy into it. You know, I'm a, I'm a, someone who's working 40 hours a week and I have a young family and I'm trying to do this, you know, at, at I'm basically a full time job level as well. And it was a lot. It absolutely was a lot. And, um, that's just the way it goes. You know, I mean, there's, there's no other, as much as it, uh, in retrospect led to some, some difficulties at the job front and, and, you know, it's you, you're all of a sudden you're super busy. Maybe you're a little more anxious than you should be and, um, and things like that. It, it also allowed me to be, I was so excited because I saw like, oh my gosh, like it got to the point where I could see like, this could be a profession. It's not yet. And I don't know when it will be, but this hobby has now morphed into something else. And is there a chance that I could make this a full-time job like that, that inspired so much incitement in me, Mario, that I could not contain it. So it was really hard. You know, I would go through these periods, very short periods of time where like, all right, I need to pull back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? I just, I couldn't pull back. And there were moments where like, I should just stop doing the podcast. I should just focus on, focus on fundraising. But I'm like, why would I want to focus on that? I hate fundraising. <laughs> like, this isn't something I want to do. This is something I got into because I couldn't coach. I didn't want to coach anymore because it was just too demanding on my home life. And I, you know, met the woman I wanted to marry and I wanted to have kids and I didn't want to work a hundred hours a week anymore, you know? And, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I got into fundraising because when I left coaching, what else on campus could I do? Right. I'd only worked at colleges, you know, you know, so I was like, all right, let's continue to work at colleges. Like that's, that's the area that I know. And it got to the point where I was looking, you know, not looking in the metaphorical mirror and saying to myself, all right, what am I going to do here? Like you're sacrificing your job effectiveness by doing as much as you can with this podcast as often as you can. And you know, you're make you're by not making a decision, you're making a decision. And ultimately it came down to the fact that I just believed that I could turn this into a profession. I didn't exactly know how to do it or when it would happen, but I just started to, I just started to believe. And ultimately that belief, um, you know, kind of ruled the day for me. Let's hit the brakes on podcasting for a bit because we will come back to it. But I'd love to rewind and learn more about when you got your start in running. Yeah, so I was one of those kids who was always kind of one of the faster kids in like in this grade or whatever. You know what I mean? We all have our gym class stories and stuff like that. But um, for me, it really started, my, my dad was a two-pack-a-day smoker. And um, around, I think it was when I was in sixth grade, he um, he had just lost his job, which was really hard on our family. And um, I think you know he was he was it was just it was just a tough spot all around for all of us. And he then decided that he was going to give up smoking. I think probably out of just some some feeling of self control 
uh, or control over what was in his life, you know? So he decided he's going to give up smoking. He'd been smoking forever. He was a really good athlete growing up. You know, he played college football. Um, and was, he was also on you know, a really, really good track team in, at Longmeadow uh, High School. You know Longmeadow. You're a Massachusetts guy. Um, his high school football team was undefeated. He went and played at Union. Uh, so he was a good athlete. But he got to the point where he's smoking two packs a day, never exercised, and then gives that up and basically trades in that addiction for running which, you know, we see all the time um, in our world of, you know, basically people, people trading addictions. And, and so he, all of a sudden, he's a pickup running and he's doing it all the time. And for him, that was his mental, physical, and social, I mean, mental, physical, and emotional release. And he would go to all the local, uh, you know, 5Ks and 10Ks. And as a little kid who worshiped his dad, I was right there with him. So I'd go to all the kid races. So that was the kind of the start of it for me uh, in high school, I, I did I did do track for a couple of years. I did cross country um, my sophomore year, uh, but nothing serious. You know, I mean, for track, it was fun, but, like, I probably skipped half the practices, Mario. <laughs> Our coach was really good. He actually ran at Georgetown. But, like, you know, ultimately, you know, it was just kind of very, it was a very laissez-faire approach to practice. I would, I would, I would skip half of them to go play uh, roller hockey. And, you know, I loved that too. So like, I would skip out and go to all the meets and our four by four team was pretty good in Rhode Island. I think we finished six in the state meet. We ran, this shows you how slow Rhode Island is. I think we ran three thirty six in the four by four that year. Um, and that was that. And then later on as a college basketball player, you have your own, you know, every year you have to do your strengths tests and your you know physical fitness tests to make sure that you weren't lazy over the summer. So I'd run for that. Um, but, Ultimately, I didn't really, really start running till about age 25. Did I kind of do it uh, on my own um, for running sake, as opposed to it being uh, either you know a way to connect with my dad or as just something that I needed to do for basketball? What was the spark that reignited that relationship with running at the age of 25? It was primarily just a need to to be an athlete again. You know, I, I was. You know, I was still doing the noontime hoops thing, but it was kind of inconsistent and it was, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to do noontime hoops in a workplace because, you know, it's like between getting ready to play and then showering and changing, like that takes half an hour in and of itself. It's like you play for half an hour. What if you like, if you lose a game, you only played for like 10 minutes in the whole hour. So uh, ultimately it was like a consistent, a consistent physical outlet was the primary primary reason. Uh, my buddy, uh, my best friend growing up, was an unbelievably talented runner. Uh, so he was still doing it. And I wanted to I basically you know, would do it to, to kind of keep up with him a little bit. And kind of went from there. And then here in Rhode Island, we had this wonderful thing, the Ronald McDonald House running team here in Providence. I mean, it's just such a blessing. It's run by... Um, Ann and Bob Rothenberg, who were the coaches at Brown University for a very, very long time. And it was like the steal of a deal, Mario. Like you're on this team, you're running out the Brown track, and you pay 50 bucks a year to be part of it. And he's sending me like weekly training plans. Like it was insane. You know, the, the, the amount of expertise that I was getting for someone who was, you know, an amateur of amateurs and only paying 50 bucks a year to be part of it. And I think all the money went to Ronald McDonald House. Like Bob and Ann got $0 out of the deal. And uh, being a part of that team really kind of brought it to the next level for me. So, you know, I was able to go to the track. And before us mortals would, would go step on the track, Bob would be out there with some of the best runners around. Um, you know, guys who were running, you know, two, 
225 to 232 in the marathon. Uh, some women who were uh, you know around 245 to 250. If they were marathoners, you know, 5K, you know, the, the corresponding times. And watching them compete was just awe-inspiring. You're saying like, oh my God, these people are so good. And that was really fun for me. And it really kind of brought me back to um, not only that feeling of when you're feeling athletic and strong in your body, but also doing it in a social environment, which for me at the time was important because, you know, basketball is such a social endeavor that not, you know, that, that having that social piece really helped connect me personally to the sport. So that was my next question. Let's dig a little further on that. How much of it was that team atmosphere, that group environment that you were used to as someone who was in that as a basketball player? Well, it was hugely important and it hasn't changed. It's different now because I'm not part of a team. I just, with my home life and where we live, it's just too much of a stretch to be part of a team uh, and be there consistently at times where other people are running. But, you know, I kind of have like my, my digital, <laughs> like my, my social media team, uh, which kind of fills that gap for me. But um, th- at that time, it was just, it made such a difference for me because it was a way of connecting to other people as peers. You know, like when you're coaching, you don't really have peers, right? Like as a young coach, I had to go out of my way to dissociate myself from my players who were so close to me in age, closer to me than my age was to the head coach, Mm -hmm. you know? So for a lot, and just like a lot of recent college grads, you struggle with the the social side. You know, you basically left the most social period of your life. And now you're going into an area like for me, I didn't go to live in a city. I'm living in Rhode Island, for God's sakes. And I'm not surrounded by my friends. I went to Vassar College. All my friends moved back to the West Coast or went to live in New York City. So I didn't have any of the college friends around me anymore. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was yearning for that social connection. So finding it, it wasn't as if the people who were on that team became lifelong friends. I was fine with them being running acquaintances, seeing them fairly consistently and enjoying that experience. That was more than enough for me. And it really helped tie me to that. And ultimately, when I stepped away, either, um, you know, for periods of time from going to those workouts, it... um you know, I wasn't consistent in my running. So my consistency as a runner completely paralleled my attendance at those workouts. Not that attendance at those workouts was necessary to be a good runner because I already knew the workouts ahead of time. They were already on my schedule. I could have done that at home if I so desired. But being a part of it really was the tipping point. Yeah, and kept you accountable. Yeah, it certainly did. No question about it. What were your professional goals at the time? So at that time, I was still coaching. So at that time, my professional goal was to be a Division three head basketball coach. And were you a volunteer assistant at a school? You're doing that on a, on a part-time basis. Had you already gotten into sort of the kind of fundraising and you know, administrative side of things as well? No. So I was, I was, a, I was a part-time I was a part-time coach. I was, I was the associate head coach. It was, it was a small school in Rhode Island called Roger Williams University. And so my pay, and I was technically a part-time employee. <laughs> I say technically. I worked like 50 hours a week. So I was, I definitely was, it was part-time and name only. Uh, in addition to that, I also worked full, like a literal full-time job in admissions. So, okay. um, 
that was like how I got health insurance. That's how I had, you know, money to pay rent, right? So you know, being an assistant coach at in any sport at the division three level um, is not a road to wealth and fame. That's for sure. And, you know, you get five to 10 grand, maybe, and you're working 50 hours a week. And for me, I worked it all year round. It wasn't even seasonal. Uh, so you're doing that constantly. And then I had a full-time job on top of that, a full-time job that required two and a half months of travel in the fall and two months of travel in the spring. And I traveled to New Jersey. So I'd be gone five to 10 days at a time. So, um, it was a pretty hectic lifestyle at that point. And during the winter, I would be constantly driving at night for recruiting. So I'd recruit four or five nights a week and we didn't have a lot of Rhode Island recruits. So we, I, I was in Bristol, Rhode Island at the time. I'd be constantly driving to Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Maine, you know, for like, you know, an up and back trip in one night. So it was a it was a crazy time. Uh, so I wasn't super consistent with the running because of everything that was going on. But when I was, it was because I was attending those those uh, track practices. When did you know you wanted to get into coaching? Oh man, since I was little. Uh, you know, I remember shoot, even freshman year. I remember this eighth grade or freshman year of high school. You know, we were supposed to write down what do you want to be when you grow up, and like. Like the glib response, like, oh, I want to be in the NBA. Like, like I was well aware I was not going to be. Uh, but that was still like, you know, this is like you put that down, you know, tongue in cheek on the paper. Um, and then the next piece was like, yeah, I want to be a coach. And then the third was I want to be uh, working in sports journalism about basketball. Uh, so that was, that was, I remember writing that down on the paper. Um, you know, the, the first goal was, you know, you just scratch that out. I knew that wasn't actually legit. So it was about coaching um, or working in media. And that was, that was the original goal. And it never changed, frankly. And that, that was always the goal. It's what I wanted to do. I love sports with a passion. It was all I did in life. And I didn't want that to change. Did you have any coaches as you were coming up who had a profound impact on you that sort of steered you in that direction? I definitely had good coaches that I, especially my J, my JV coach my sophomore year. So I kind of, for anyone who knows high school basketball, I kind of swung between JV and varsity. So I would, so I, I was on both rosters. So I said, so that was, that was kind of where I was as a sophomore. But my JV coach was this awesome, awesome guy. And I loved him. But I wanted to be a coach long before that. I, I think for me, it was, I want to work in sports. What are the obvious jobs that would, that would allow me to do that? And you don't have to search very far to find the two that I mentioned. You know what I mean? So um, I was, I loved the idea of being a coach. I loved following coaches and, and athletes as well. Like I loved everything about sports. So uh, it wasn't about a specific individual that like mentored me or I learned from like, wow, I want to be like that individual. It was much more of, I understand the sports landscape and I think I could fit into this role. Shifting back to your relationship with running, you talked earlier about what reignited that spark for you in your mid twenties. When did you start laying out races and putting times down that you wanted to chase and other goals that you wanted to go after? Oh, that's always been there. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, as as a competitive person, there isn't any, there isn't a task that I start doing where I all of a sudden don't put a goal attached to it immediately. So for me, the minute I started running again, I was looking at what could I do. And so th that was kind of one in the same in terms of where in the process it started. Uh, when I started doing these track workouts, it was, for, you know, as someone who, you know, considering my athletic background, 
Going to track workouts was a great way for me to get involved in running because it was right in my wheelhouse. You know, doing 400-meter repeats, 600-meter repeats, or even half-mile repeats, it was hysterical because I would do them with people who were far better runners than I was, who were running way more miles per week, who could run a half marathon or 10K or, or, full, or, or, or a marathon way faster than I could. It's not even close. But I could keep up with them on track workouts because it just fit my athletic profile at the time. So for me, it was like, hey, I can run with these people? All right, let's do it. And it, that was exciting for me. And even in those times where like all of a sudden you beat them on a, you beat them during one of the reps or it's like the last, you know, the last 600, let's see who, you know, you see who takes it. Even if, even if no one else is competing, I was competing. You know what I mean? Uh, so, and I think people understood that. Like I didn't, not that I would, I wouldn't trash talk or anything, but I think people understood that I was pretty competitive. And so that was always there. And with that being said, you know, I wanted to test myself and I wanted to race right away. And, and one of those things where you, as you get into running, you know, mid to late twenties, you know, there's a certain gravity around the marathon. And, uh, for a lot of people, that's unfortunate <laughs> because there's so many more, so much more to running than running marathons, Lord knows, but there was a certain gravity around it. And it wasn't long before I got sucked into that and, and started, you know, kind of going down those lines. But, you know, for me, it was those, the idea of running fast with fast people, uh, was the initial draw. And then, you know, immediately like, all right, let's, let's, let's go sign up for races. Cause remember, even when I was in middle school, I was going to like, you know, two or three races a month mm-hmm. for five months out of the year with my dad. So, like, that wasn't exactly a, a new area for me. Where does your competitive drive come from? Oh, if you listen to my mom, she says it's been there ever since I started playing Candyland. <laughs> I have not, even to the even to this day, Mario. I'm not great when things don't don't fall my way <laughs> in terms of in terms of winning and losing. As anyone who's played pickup basketball with me can attest. Um, I think there's there's so much in this world that's learned behavior. Um, that's one thing for me that seems to have been genetic. Are there any areas of your life where you're not competitive or you can turn it off a little more easily? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I think in the in a non-athletic world, I'm not that competitive. Like, let's just take this world, right? I have a podcast, you have a podcast. I am not competitive about that at all. I am well aware of what the podcast rankings are, and I don't feel this sense of I need to beat anybody. You know, despite the fact that I have a strong passion for it, it's my job, I derive revenue from it, all of those things. But I don't have a competitiveness streak. In fact, I'm much more of like, hey, let's all get better type feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, with sports, for me, the competitiveness was always there. It's manifested itself differently now. I'm much more competitive with myself. So I don't care. I mean, unless like someone like, you know, steps on like, you know, or someone like tries to talk me a starting line, like, you know, I'll get the juices flowing for that competition. But if it's just a typical race workout or whatever, I am insanely competitive with my prior self uh, to the detriment of myself. That's for sure. When did you start identifying as a runner? (sighs) Oh, good question. Hmm. Probably with the podcast, not even right away. Maybe an hour, maybe a year into the podcast, maybe two years ago. Why do you think it took that long? Um, I would say it took that long because basketball was such an ever-present part of my life for so long, and because it was such a 
part of my life during such formative years, right? Um, basketball to me, in terms of my identity, was similar to like, if you think about the songs that you liked from age 12 to 22, you're always mm-hmm. going to like those songs, right? <laughs> like if I go into your Spotify playlist right now, Mario, I'm probably going to see a lot of that. Um, for me, basketball was the same thing in terms of my identity. And, and again, for the same reasons. And I think that with the podcast came, uh, and not just with the podcast, because a lot of things outside of the podcast were happening at the same point. I was embracing it. I was also becoming a coach and, and so on and so forth. So I think relatively recently, I really started to make that that final shift. Not that like four years ago, I was still considering myself a basketball player. I probably just didn't have a label on it. It was just Matt, maybe former basketball player, is what I would have said. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it almost seems it's because now running takes up more of your time and your headspace. And because of that, you put yourself into this bucket as I'm a runner first who still dabbles in basketball or pays attention to basketball rather than I'm a basketball player, I'm a basketball coach who dabbles a little bit in running. That and I think an even bigger piece is the um, just the conversations that I'm having with people either on the podcast or in real life or as a coach where I am you know, I guess trying to phrase this correctly, where I'm learning about their lives and how running impacts them at a level that I never have before. And that that piece has really ingratiated, or not ingratiated, but has really um, kind of folded me into the community in a way mm-hmm. where I wasn't before. You know, I was still kind of a tourist in a, in a sense. You know, I was doing these things but I wasn't really part, I wasn't interacting with people, you know, to, to learn more about them. It was still, I was still very self-centered in terms of my um, insertion into the running community. Whereas now, uh, while I still have things that I like to do and want to do and achieve, to do and achieve, I'm definitely much more, uh, ing- other people's lives matter to me in the running community in a way that they didn't before, even though I was running more miles. And I think that was the difference. It wasn't more or less running. It was how much emotional energy was I putting into the sport? And it's not even comparable to what I'm doing now to what I was doing then. Well, and I think the other big takeaway there, hearing you describe it, is just that connection to the community and other runners that maybe wasn't there before you had your podcast. And I say that because I've talked to, I don't know how many runners over the years who have a hard time identifying as a runner or who are hesitant to identify as a runner because they either don't do races or they've only done 5k and they haven't done a marathon. And that's like one of the walls that I would like to see broken down is those runners who are, I mean, they're, they're every, every bit of runner. They're as much of a runner as as you or I or Des Linden or whoever, but because they haven't done A, B, and C, they don't feel like they can identify themselves as that. Right. And I think an easy test for this is if you were to say, hey, what does a runner look like? And if someone can give you a representation of that, and if they don't match that representation, it's going to be hard for you to bridge that gap. Yeah. And, um, you know, the punchline is like, a runner looks like nothing. (laughs) 
right? Uh, it doesn't, you know, it's like, what does, uh, what does, uh, you know, what does someone who likes to breathe air look like? You know, I mean, it's, it's the same question, right? Um, so there's, there's that gap. I think that so many people feel, and part of that is internal and part of it's external, right? If someone feels like other people don't view them as runners, well, then maybe they don't view themselves as a runner. Um, you know, I know Jason Fitzgerald has talked about this as well. And, and I think I think for me, it's unfortunate because all of a sudden people will then tie their experience to other people's expectations of what, what it means to be in this community. Um, and ultimately, uh, th- that's, you know, that's a non-starter for me in terms of like those kinds of conversations. Like, I, I think ultimately, you know, yeah, it's it's so funny. Like I think Dorothy Beale approaches this topic really well with her "I run this body," you know, "I run this body" um, type stuff, and and it's one of those things where I feel bad for people, or I feel sad for people, I should say, who are made to feel less than because they don't fit some sort of preconceived notion as to what it must feel or look like, or what level of runner you need to be to be part of this community mm-hmm. because as someone who's in it and someone who has gotten slower every year for the last five years and yet is more gracious in this community than ever, you know, I'm a testament to the fact that that simply does not matter. Yeah. Well, but this is why representation matters and why shows like yours matter because you are casting a wide array of runners for people to learn about and potentially identify with. I try to do the same in my work. We're finally starting to see more of it with some of the bigger outlets. Like this this month in particular was huge because you had people of different colors, shapes, and backgrounds on the front of major magazines, which, I mean, traditionally hasn't happened. We'll see if it holds, and I hope it does hold because that's what people see, and that is how they, you know, formulate this idea of what a runner is and what a runner should look like but it's it's good to see it's good that we're seeing more representation of diversity of color of body type of background of interest even um and and far beyond just the you know competitive side of the sport because that is how this community i think really can come to call itself inclusive Right, because there's been this constant... I've, first of all, I agree with everything you just said there, and I think you hit the nail on the head. And it's not that pe- more people will start running. Mm-hmm. It's that more people will be engaged in the running community, and it will be more universal. And those are the things that really matter, uh, I think, to both of us, and, and even more so now that we've you know not only seen the importance of this, but also tried to... Um, you know, harness it within our own our own mediums, and it's something that I'm still not perfect at. You know what I mean? And um, I'm trying to be as cognizant of it as possible, while at the same time trying to make it so everyone knows that everyone that that everyone who is invited onto the show knows it's because I really want to talk with them, and I value their experiences as I value their experiences and. I'm just so excited to have a chat with them that they don't feel like I was pressured into inviting them on the show or something, right? So, like, I want to make sure that that's clear every single time. And and ultimately, 
you know, my conversations with Carolyn Sue, not, not on the podcast. You know, she's someone who I've leaned on for a long time since she sent me um, very instructive <laughs> DMs. I think it was two years ago. And we've, cons- I, I must send her uh, and she sent me DMs. I think if not every day, every other day uh, on topics like this or just even fun stuff. And, and she's the one behind Diverse We Run. And it's, it's um, something that I'm very aware that making sure, I say, I'm saying I'm very aware now, I was less aware before, that making sure the people that I have on my show represent the broader running community as much as I possibly can and to do that in the long term, right? So it's not like, you know, what you, you don't want that situation where like you do everything in the short term, right? Like if you're eating a salad, you know, you have that feeling like you eat a salad, every single bite needs to be like a miniature version of the salad. Like, so it's like, all right, each bite has to have a tomato and a cucumber and an onion and a piece of lettuce and some dressing and then you eat it, right? Like not every month of the podcast can be perfect, but I think right. over the long period of time, you want to have the full panoply of options. I like that analogy. I hadn't quite thought of it that way but i do think of this this very thing that you're you're talking about it's like it, and that's, we part can, of, that's from the dimitri martin skit i should say that <laughs> it's not a matt chittam original <laughs> i'll have to look that up but but I, I think you're spot on it's like because it it's impossible every week to be you know completely balanced diverse inclusive whatever you want to call it and, and i think a lot of us, especially in this social media age where things are very instant and we're so focused on like the here and now and today, it's, it's easy to look at things that way, but we have to zoom out and we have to look at the bigger picture and we have to look at things over a longer period of time to really you know, see that type of diversity, that type of representation, that type of inclusivity. Right. Like, cause I'll go through, I'll go like, you know, a couple of podcasts in a row. Like I'll get, say I have, you know, this has happened. I've had like three or four women on in a row and I'll get a text message like, Hey, you have any dudes on anytime soon? I'm like, man, like, I've had plenty of dudes on. Like, it's like, yeah. don't worry. Like there's going to be some guys on here, you know? Um, and that's just one example. Uh, and that's why I say like, all right, like if you're going to be judging a show or publication or whatever, like, Hey, judge away, just make sure that you're viewing it over a longer enough sample size. Um, and that's what I try to do too, to make sure that I don't feel this pressure of like, okay, I got to really be perfectly thought out in terms of guest selection and timing and all of that. And there was a period where I was doing that and I'm like, I'm creating this anxiety for no reason. Like the people who like this show, they're going to trust me. If I'm approaching this with an open mind and an open heart, and I'm trying to do the right thing, then I can just relax a second here. And I, I can, I, this, I can make this work without feeling the need to squeeze too hard. I've been there, dude. I can I can appreciate that uh, on this side of the mic as well. Um, while we're on the topic of of podcasting and your show, how does it continue to evolve from here? And I'm talking about the Rambling Runner podcast in particular. So um, this spring, when basically every race was canceled, all of a sudden it was so easy to get professional runners on your podcast. <laughs> they weren't doing anything, right? They're like, I don't have anything to do. I don't have any races, which means my sponsors are worried. I need to get out there, right? And all of a sudden, it was so easy to book a guest. And I fell into this trap of all of a sudden, I started booking pros on the show almost as much as I was booking amateur runners. And I was excited about it. Like, I want to talk to these people. I love professional runners, right? And it was so interesting, Mario, because all of a sudden, I was having these pros on and my numbers started to go up significantly. 
And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I guess my my followers really wanted this. I should have done this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And then a couple months later, my numbers start to dip. And I'm like, wait, what's going on here? Like, why? But what, what, what was that? And it took a while for me to figure it out. And I started talking to a lot. I did start doing listener surveys. Like, I literally called, you know, f- 50 to 100 dedicated listeners and ask them their feelings on the show. I spent two weeks doing it. And what ha- what came, what became clear was when I was having pro runners on the show, as much as I love those conversations, and as a certain segment of my listenership liked those conversations as well, the bump in numbers wasn't an influx of new subscribers. It was tourists. It was people who loved Stephanie Bruce and came in for the Stephanie Bruce episode and then never listened to another one. Right? So that's just an example. Again, I mm-hmm. love that episode. I love talking to Stephanie Bruce, but it wasn't my lane. And it wasn't even like a small pivot from my lane. It was, you know, going four, four, it was like basically the driving equivalent of going from the high speed lane to going like, you know, slamming on your brakes, going over to the exit four lanes away. And what happened was I lost sight of that because I looked at short term numbers to try to gauge audience interest. What happened was, is that my, some of my core audience started to fall off a little bit. And the new people who were listening to this show were only in for that episode. And then I kind of lost, I kind of lost it a little bit in terms of where the show was going. And I, it took me a while to figure out exactly what had happened. Um, but luckily I had a lot of, a lot of listeners who were, um, you know, very sweet about it, but told me, you know, how they felt about the show and that they still liked it, but they, they noticed the difference. And I'm glad I had those phone calls and I appreciate the people who were candid and honest with me about it because I pivoted back and the show is going well and it's, it's exciting. And not that I won't ever have a pro on again. I certainly will. But when I do, it will be to talk about what affects amateur runners mm-hmm. and that that's going to be the difference. So it's making sure that, um, you know, because they're part of this running community too. And so I, I don't want to close myself off to that, but it's going to be much making sure that I'm embracing the dedicated amateur runner on my show. That means the people that I'm going to be interviewing and if it's not who I'm interviewing, then making sure that the people that I do are speaking to them and for them. Does that mean you do more stuff like you did with the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, which was, I mean, it says it right in the title of the show, Road to the Olympic Trials. You interviewed um, athletes who were prepping for the Olympic Trials, some top contenders, you know, some who maybe just barely qualified. I think you had myself on to do some analysis and it was it was very much this like specific thing for a set period of time. Did that sort of spark anything in you that was like, all right, hey, maybe I couldn't do this necessarily on my main feed. I can tease it once in a while and the people who are interested will will come over, but in the future I may pursue some you know, shows that aren't necessarily for the dedicated amateur runner because I'm interested in that type of thing too. Yeah, and I think that was part of the reason I started interviewing pros on the Rambling Runner podcast as well. So I was, I was used to interviewing pros at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent nine months talking to Jared Ward and Kellen Taylor and Roberta Groner and Parker Stinson and, and what have you. So like, you know, Lou Serafini, John Ranieri. You know, so I'd had these conversations the whole time. I just didn't have them on my Rambling Runner feed. They were on a different feed. So talking to pros for Rambling Runner wasn't novel to me, but it was it was a different thing for that specific podcast stream. So for me, moving forward, am I going to do, say, Road to the Olympic Trials again? 
I think I will. Like I was going to do it again this year. For track trials, yeah. Yeah. So I had I had locked up eight people for season two of Road to the Olympic Trials to do for the track trials. And it was some really good and exciting names. Um, I'm not going to say who they were uh, out of deference to them because, you know, if, if I, I would like to start that up again, maybe in January. And I want to, you know, I don't want to out them and all of a sudden then be like, oh, yeah, I said no the second time around. So I'm, I'm going to keep under my hat who said yes. But um, I was excited about it. That's for sure. And I still am. And uh, as long as things continue to move the way they are, I, I'm definitely going to try to pick that up again uh, beginning of 2021. Last bit about podcasting. You went full time essentially with Rambling Runner and coaching earlier this year like just as COVID was hitting, what was that moment like for you to leave the security of your full-time job and to jump into the uncertainty of being a self-employed podcast host and running coach, which I can relate to? Yeah, so I uh, I was, I changed. So after Providence College, I became the head of, or basically the, the first person to be to do athletic fundraising at a local school here in Rhode Island, Johnson Wales University, Division Three school. So I was the head of their athletic um, fundraising arm, and that was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Back in college athletics, it was really exciting. Uh, but at that point, I was also saw the writing on the wall with Rambling Runner that at some point I was going to be leaving. So uh, I put in a six week notice. I was like, all right, finally got to the point where I lined up all these sponsors. I was at that point a coach for McCurdy Trained, which is, I think, the biggest uh, coaching service, the, the, the biggest coaching, run coaching service in the country. Um, James is a good friend of mine and my coach, uh, James McCurdy, who co-owns it with his wife, Heather. And I got to the point, where I'm like, all right, like I feel completely stable in leaving my job and moving forward with this. There's a level of revenue I know is going to be coming in. It's equal to the revenue I'm making at my full-time job. Let's do it. So give them six weeks notice, think like, all right, you have plenty of time to, you know, kind of offboard me here and get someone potentially in the mix. Mario, the first week that I am on my own, life mission fulfilled. I am a full-time podcaster and running coach is the same week that it was the first week of distance learning for my kids. So <laughs> COVID had hit. Uh, it, it really hadn't, you know, when I gave my six-week notice, it's still like, you obviously saw it coming, but we were not necessarily aware of how pervasive it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, so my first week, instead of actually doing the thing that I was thought I was going to do, all of a sudden I'm teaching homeschool for my kids and I'm still doing the podcast at night. In fact, I had less time to do the podcast during the day in that setup than I did at my job, because at my job, like, I can still like respond to like the random emails here and there, or I would record a lot of podcasts on my lunch break. So I literally would drive to like a local church, park in their back parking lot, and record the podcast on my lunch break. From there is where I normally did it. All of a sudden, I couldn't even do that at home because I was giving my, I was feeding my kids lunch because my wife is a teacher, so she was teaching her her students remotely from our bedroom. So it was this wild thing, like talking about cognitive dissonance. It's like, yes, I'm finally a full-time podcaster and I'm not podcasting during the day. I'm still doing exactly what I was doing before. Was that sort of an oh shit moment or did it kind of work out because you could devote that time and attention to your kids and help them with their own remote learning? It was, there were kind of a multitude of emotions, right? So like you're just, you're worried about your, your family's health, you know, because you have, for us, like my my parents and then my in-laws, 
they're the kind of people that you're worried about with COVID, right? They have underlying health conditions and you're just so scared all the time. And we still are all the time. It's like this constant fear. Um, with that said, all of a sudden I was in a position where I could do these things around the house and we were really blessed because of that. Like my wife didn't have to like try to do her job and this job all at once where I'm still you know, going to Johnson and Wales and trying to fundraise for an athletic department that's not playing games all of a sudden, you know? So it really worked out timing-wise really well for our family. It didn't make my job any easier, <laughs> but it was really a positive thing for our family, that's for sure. Before we wrap up here, I want to talk to you about Mastering 40, which is an initiative that you just announced few weeks ago. You're turning 40 years old this year. You would like to run a sub 40-minute 10K. I'm guessing sometime in the calendar year, you alluded earlier to how you've been slowing down every year for the last five years. So I'd love for you to just tell me a little bit more about this and when you decided it was something that you wanted to put out into the world and let other people know about and document it along the way. All right. So the last calendar year was the worst athletic year of my life. Okay? I was constantly injured, nothing huge, but just constant stuff that I couldn't even kind of like train through. And it stinks. You're all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're this person in the running community who can't run. It's, it's just mentally, it's not fun. Emotionally, it stunk. Physically, you know, I, gained, I gained 25 pounds in the last calendar year, Mario. I'm not gonna, you know, that's one of the things I'm going to be open and honest about everybody during this process or everything during this process. And, you know, I'm sitting here beginning of June or beginning of July, and I'm like, all right, like, I'm finally about to be cleared to run again. Thank goodness. Like, what am I going to do? Right? Because this isn't going great. And I need, I need a paradigm shifting thing to happen here. I, I personally need to, you know, shift what's happening. And it got to the point where, like, all of a sudden, I don't have to do full-time job and full-time podcaster and it's like really wearing me down right because like before i do all this podcast stuff at night so i'm getting four hours of sleep and then i'm trying to run in the morning and the whole thing was a disaster and you know that's just that, that was the bed that i made and i had to lay in it but all of a sudden quit my job i'm doing this full time i should be able to run what can i do what can i do that's going to be inspiring to me all right i need a goal all right so what's the goal going to be so then it quickly became all right I want to break 40 in the 10K. I, I've never done that before. That's going to be a real big stretch goal. Talk to my coach. He's like, I think you can do it. It's going to, you're going to need to be really dedicated, but I think you can do it. So it's so like, okay, well, I want to do that. Well, then it became, what does that mean in terms of how do I want to present it to people? Is this something that is just going to be a private thing or am I going to make it a public thing? And then it got to the point where like, you know what? when I was making those phone calls about um, the listener surveys I talked to you about, mm -hmm. the last question I asked every person was like, hey, I'm thinking about breaking, you know, I basically said the exact same thing I just said to you. And I said, I'm thinking about making this a public thing and capturing it in some way, whether it's podcasts, videos, blogging. Like, I wasn't sure. Like, is this something that you would care about? Is this something you'd want, would you, would you want me to share this journey? And literally, Mario, every single person was like, hell yeah. I got that on every single one. I'm like, oh, I really have to do this now. Like, I can't check it out now. Like, all these people know about it. And 
like, all right, well, let's do it, man. So I, um, I got to the point where like, all right, how am I going to do this? So I decided to work with three professionals. So I'm working with my coach, James McCurdy. I'm working with a registered dietitian, Starla Garcia uh, from the Houston area, who's also an Olympic trials marathon marathoner. Uh, And I'm working with a sports psychologist and therapist, Adrian Langlier. Uh, You might also know her because she's one of the handful of people who review shoes for uh, Believe in the Run, which is a really nice website if you're interested in shoes. And I got them on my team and how we segmented it is this, like every third Monday, I put out a podcast that is basically taped conversations that I'm having with these three professionals. I am open and honest the entire time. My nutrition failings, my mental health failings or what I'm what I'm going through and we're being very honest here. And then just from a coaching perspective as well, I'm also blogging about it twice a week. And we named it Mastering 40 because not only am I turning 40, I'm trying to break 40 in the 10K, but you know, in next January 24th, I'll officially be a master's runner. Okay, so what's the timeline looking like here in terms of when you're targeting the 10K itself? So it will be next summer. Okay. Lord knows what the race calendar will look like in terms of what races are happening. I feel like there's a, there's an equal chance that there could be twice as many races next summer as there usually are or zero races. I have no idea. But, um, you know, I know race directors the world over are like, we need to make 2021 really, really good because we're struggling here. So I feel like there could be a 10K every every night if I, if I chose one. Um, but it's uh, we'll see what happens. But it's definitely going to be a year-long journey for me to get there. Uh, I'm going to need the full year, Mario. <laughs> Let me tell you that. What have been some of the biggest early learnings so far? In the past, I've always been able to exercise my way out of a bad diet. Um, I did not do that over the last calendar year because I wasn't exercising. Uh, now that I'm picking up running, I'm building up. Last week, I ran 20 miles. Uh, it was my first 20-mile week in, I think, four months. Um, I'm, I'm starting to build up and build up, but maintaining a diet that allows me uh, to lose some of this weight. Because so right now, I so I'm five eight. Um, with basketball shoes, I'm five nine. So if you look at an old, an old, an old Vassar College roster, I think I'm five nine. But I'm really five eight, uh, and I weigh uh, at this point, I weigh one hundred eighty nine pounds. So that is not for me. That is not where I need to be. That's not where I want to be. That's not a normal weight for me. Again, each person's weight is different. I'm not talking to anybody else. I'm just speaking about my body. And losing that weight is paramount. And eating in a way that facilitates that is a struggle. I have a massive sweet tooth. I have huge cravings. And it's been a struggle. And that's one of those things where I really need to engage as much as I can. And that's something that, at least early on in this process, is uh, something that is quite challenging. Have you worked with a nutritionist before? No, I have not. No, this is the first time. What's it been like having someone to be accountable to on that end of things? So far, it's like this mix of like, I'm so glad that we're working together. And in addition to that, it's this, um, this is is a hard word, but it's like this level of shame of Mm -hmm. not fulfilling my end of the bargain at times. And all of a sudden, like three months in, I'm like, man, I gained a few pounds. Like what? I have all this help. Why? Why? Why did I do that? Like, why did you know what I mean? So you start beating yourself up, right? Or I shouldn't say that. I start beating myself up, and and it gets to this feeling of like, all right, like what are you, what are you doing? Like you have all this help. You're you're in, you're in such an advantageous position. 
why aren't you doing the things you need to do? And then all of a sudden I'm stuck in my own head and, and, and all of that. So it's one of those things where she's great and she knows exactly what she's talking about. And I need to, and this is where having, having Adrian there as a therapist is helping me deal with that, that personal shame that's probably much more deep-rooted than this particular conversation or this aspect of our conversation that is like leading me down that negative path when things don't go as quite as well as I think they should or go in the timeline or linear fashion that I think they should. Has it been challenging for you at this point to almost on some days forget about the fact that you're trying to break a 40-minute 10K because it's something you've never done before and it seems so far off at this point and just focus on what it is you need to do today to be better tomorrow? I think I'm not at the point where I'm too fixated on the time. I'm so far away from it, Mario, that it's not like, it's not happening anytime soon. You know what I mean? I think that there may come a time six months from now where I start knocking on the door of it, Mm -hmm. but maybe I'm plateauing where I start to maybe fixate, but I'm so far away from it right now that it's not... It's just, uh, it's it's too overwhelming, right? It's like saying like, hey, you know, sometimes it feels like, I'm trying to make an analogy here. Like if I told like a 25-year-old, like, hey, I want you to make $175,000 next year. Or if I told them, I want, to make a, I want you to make a million dollars next year. To them, it feels the same, even though those are two very different because they're just so far out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it feels for me right now. How much of this is about mastering 40 versus developing better habits and putting yourself on a better path as it relates to your relationship with training, your relationship with diet, and your relationship to your mental outlook on how you're approaching all of these things? There's an absolute, there's a lot of that. But for me, there's something deeper than that. For me, it's, I don't feel like I've ever reached my athletic potential in anything. And I want to get there. I desperately want to get there. It's the same reason that I read every single blog post that Matt Fitzgerald did when he was with Nazalie. I read his book and then I talked to him about it. And then I interviewed him about it. And all of those kinds of journey stories I have always craved. And it's because of this feeling of like, I know I can do something, but I haven't done it. I haven't reached my potential, not even close. And I don't care what my potential was when I'm 20. I want to reach my potential, what it currently is. And I really, really want to get there. And in addition to that, I know a lot of people feel the same way. And if they can learn something from my experience or if they can learn from these experts that I'm working with that are helping me and like, oh, they just said that to Matt. That helps me. That's exactly what I'm going through. And that that can help those people. Great, man. I'm all for it. And I think that we talked at the beginning of this conversation about the relatability. I think that's where it's key Uh, for this journey, because I think a lot of people feel the same way of, I know that even though I have constraints in my life from a time perspective, that I can do better. And I just need to utilize all the resources around me and have them coalesce and really, really make this happen. And for me, it's finally getting to that point of, this is it. I'm not just going to to, to vacantly wish that I could get there someday. I'm going to make it happen. And this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to document the journey, not only for me to have a record of it, but also if someone else is looking at it like, hey, 
I want to get there too, man. I'm in the same boat as you. And I've, I got to be honest with you, Mario, I've gotten hundreds of DMs like that of people saying like, Hey, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm going through the same thing. Like mm -hmm. if those folks hear these conversations and it helps them, Hey, great. Because, um, sometimes you never know what's going to be that last little thing that pushes someone to, to do it. And I can't even tell you exactly what it was for me, but I know that um, James, Adrian, and Starla have a lot of information to provide. And if someone can learn from my failure, um, great. And hopefully I can learn from it as well. Well, I love it. Anyone listening to this who wants to follow along, they can follow you on Instagram or at Mastering40. That's Mastering40.com. Last question before we wrap up this conversation, and it's a question that I ask of many of my guests at the end of the show, but what is exciting you, Matt Chittam, in running right now? Oh, man, what's exciting me in running? I, it's so funny because I love these pickup races that people are having. It's really exciting because um, a, a lot of people are setting new PRs. Right, We saw the Hoka One One group um, shoot Lauren Paquette, Kellen Taylor, Steph Bruce, they all go out and set up set 10K PRs uh, two nights ago. And that's so exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. And it's like, just keeps whetting my appetite for these, for, you know, something um, just bigger. And I just, I feel like we are on the precipice of what is going to be an epically fast spring. That there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be on their A game. And again, it's going to be an Olympic year. So you'd always get that. I'm just so excited for these people to be at their best because they've been in a situation where they can just train and train and train. I'm sure they are bored to death of it, but it's just like that feeling of like, they're not going to be over raced and they're going to be ready to fly. And it's going to be so exciting uh, for them to do that. I, I, I can't wait for the spring, late winter, when, when some of these races start happening in earnest again, at least for the pros. And I think you're going to see the same thing in London, um, which I'm so glad mm -hmm. they're doing just the, the elite race. It's that same sort of thing, um, to, to really have these people completely dialed in. And while it was cool to see those women do that on that court, on that, on that track and having Ben Bruce pace them, I want to see them in a, in a race that we're all used to seeing, Pacers be damned, them duking it out at the peak of their powers, because I feel like a lot of people are going to be at their peak of their powers this spring, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I'm with you. I have that same sense that something special is coming in running. I'm not going to put a timeline on it because there's just so much uncertainty out there right now. Spring would be great. I hope that's the case or next summer or whenever, whenever it may be. Um, I also have that, that same feeling that something special is going to come. And we've seen some cool stuff during these intra-squad meets, during um, you know some of these events that you just described. But once we get some head-to-head -head competition, we can have some fans back on the sideline, get the actual excitement going around the event itself. I mean, I, I just think based on what we've seen this year, like we're going we're gonna to see some pretty incredible things here uh, not too far down the road. Absolutely. And, Lo and London's going to be nuts. I mean, be, London is going to be absolutely nuts and um, it's going to be exciting to watch. Well, Matt, I've enjoyed this last hour and a half. Anyone listening to this, if you're not already, check out the Rambling Runner podcast. Follow Matt on Instagram. And thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. My pleasure, Mario. It's always a joy to talk to you.
All right. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to show your support for the show, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I want to tell you a little bit about two shoes you might want to check out the Fresh Foam 860 V11 and the new Fuel Cell Prism. Both of these are stability shoes, meaning they provide a little more support underfoot for those of you who need it. The Fresh Foam 860 V11 is a solid everyday trainer that's well cushioned, supportive, and reliable for handling a majority of your everyday miles. The lighter weight Fuel Cell Prism complements it well with just the right amount of stability to keep you supported for faster workouts and races. Both are available at newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last two things before we wrap up. If you want to support The Morning Shakeout directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown with my friend and colleague Billy Yang and offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Finally, if you're digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I am Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 